Good morning, everyone. I uh, hope, hope you're well, enjoying this sun that gives us some vitamin D. Uh, before we get into the word, I want to say this. So obviously in our country, you know, February is Black History Month. We're not doing a Black History Sermon, but I do want to, for the very nature of our church, and there are a lot of reasons I want to do this, but I always want to put before us um, that the church is the one institution in America in our world that welcomes those who are different. But historically in America, it has been the one institution that rejects it. I would say this to us, for those of you who are, and I know it's Black History Month, and I don't want to reject the other cultures, right? Hispanics and Asians and uh, because they are, they are just as important. This country is divided across, really the fault line is black and white. And I would say in this country, like in this neighborhood that we're in, uh, and right down the street, there are African-American churches. In this country, typically, especially white mainline denominations or churches, we assume that black churches are just cultural and expression. That's for them, but they don't have theological roots. Let me say this, we could easily go to a black church and get rooted and learn something about the Lord Jesus. And so I would say to us, those of us who are not African-American, I would challenge you to sit at the feet of someone who's African-American without making assumptions about what they believe and who they are and take a learner's posture. And if you want to read something, I would say uh, I will put before you uh, the survey of the, uh, the Black Church in America by Dr. Tony Evans. Uh, that's really good um, in just talking about this landscape. But it's just not one of giving you history about this is the white church, this is the black church. It all comes under the umbrella or the rubric of the kingdom of God. And that when Jesus establishes church, it doesn't matter what ethnicity you are. If the Holy Spirit lives within, he could do something. He could do something. And so we could look at the fact that there are African-American churches, and we should celebrate that. As a matter of fact, last thing I'll say, the fact that the African-American church still exists is a miracle. It is an absolute miracle because they tried to stomp it out and was established in Philly, and in my northern friends. In Philly, Mother uh, AME, uh, Absalom Jones, Richard Allen, and it's still going strong. Uh, but the, any church that calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and it exists, we need to praise God for that. Praise God for that. So in this month, we're not going to do Black History Month sermons, but I, I would be remiss as a black man. I'm sorry, y'all. I got some melanin in me. <laughs> that if I did not mention that on this morning. So if you would, please stand with me. As we read in John chapter 6, continuing in our series, John chapter 6, verses 16 to 21. The text says, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, Please mark this. He says, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at 
the land to which they were going. Let's pray. Father, speak to us through your word. Make Jesus plain to us. We would see Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Many of us enjoy sports. This is not a sermon about sports, so ladies, don't, don't be mad with me. This is not a sermon about sports. But many of us enjoy sports, whether it's women's sports, men's sports, whether it's soccer, football. Notice I had the real, I'm noticing the real football, soccer, and then the American-style football, basketball, baseball, hockey. But for those of us who like sports, we want to go see two teams. Maybe it's our favorite team, but we want to see the clash of titans. We want to see who's going to come out on top. And so we go, and, and whether we were, uh, I'm, I'm from the Gulf Coast, and, and my family is rooted with the New Orleans Saints, or they play the Chicago Bears, and then you go to the New Orleans Superdome, and you're in this, this, this dome, and to watch these teams, you want to see who's going to come out on top, or you can watch it on television. But we need to know that there are more than two teams on the field. There's a third team. But we don't go to the games to watch the third team. But without the third team, chaos would ensue. Nothing would be right. There will only be confusion. Who is this third team? The third team, they are called officials. These officials are unique in their commitment in their purpose, because they are not committed to any team on the field. They're not committed to the team on the right or the team on the left. Their commitment belongs to a different kingdom, the league office. The league office. The league office has given them a book by which they are to govern the game they are officiating. They can't make decisions for one team or the other. Their decision must be in line with the league office because it's the league office that determines how the game should be played. I hope y'all are put, picking up what I'm putting down right now because our league office is in heaven. The kingdom of God is the kingdom that determines how you and I should live. The kingdom of God has outlined and established the standards by which this game of life should be played. Ask, let me ask you a question. How are we doing? How are we doing? Or have we discarded the league office book, scripture, that comes from the kingdom of God to determine our own playbook? If we determine our own playbook, we have become a God unto ourselves, and that is what the Bible calls idolatry. But he has outlined how we ought to live in this life, his rules and his standards. When we don't live according to his standards, what happens? Chaos. Confusion. Do we see chaos and confusion in our day? And no matter what, if we go back to the basics, uh, when, when, when I played, again, when I played basketball and sports, we, when we started practice and, and, you know, we like to, I like to go from zero to 100. Like, I don't like to stretch. I don't like to do none of that. I, I, my, I, my assumption is when I walk into the gym, I'm already ready. I don't want to do 
the simple things. But when I started playing ball, the coach would not give us a basketball. He would give us a sock rolled up and say, we're not going to dribble for a week. We're not going to shoot for a week because we want to get back to the basics. When we get back to the word of God and see what he has established, what he has laid out, and we build on that. Now, we don't build on the word of God, but we start there and we let him, his rule. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We start there, back to the basics, so that we would understand how we should live. Because when we don't live according to his rules or standards, chaos ensues. He told us how we should live. When we read scripture, the king of kings and lord of lords uh, is the one who governs it all. As a matter of fact, God is often called Lord in scripture. <clears throat> this is what we want to talk about in our text today. <clears throat> that God is Lord. Jesus is Lord. He is often called Lord or Lord God. But what does it mean <clears throat> that God is Lord? Again, when we don't define things, we start talking all around them. We saw if we don't define it rightly, we start we talk all around it, and we don't we have no understanding of what we're talking about. When God is called Lord, it means that He has all authority over creation, and He has ownership of all things and people. <laughs> he has all authority, and He has ownership of everything. Is there anything in our world that He does not own? Is there any person on the planet that he has not created and that he could say to that man or woman, give me my breath back? Is there anyone? He's the owner of it all. David says it this way in Psalm 24, 1 and 2. He says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Today we're continuing our series in the Gospel of John where we are looking at Jesus, the life giver. And in our text, we are invited to see Jesus correctly. Jesus is not some weak dude uh, with soft hands that walks around saying la-di-da. But we need to see, and what we're going to see in our text today in John chapter 6, verses 16 to 21, we're not going to see a soft dude. We're going to see the God of heaven and earth who controls it all. Last week we saw that these men, after Jesus turned five loaves and two fish into a meal where everyone would get full, the result of this miracle made the people in verse 15 try to make him king because John writes in verse 15 of John chapter 6, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The, these people didn't understand Jesus rightly, but this gospel we have, all gospels, but specifically here in John, we are given an opportunity to see Jesus correctly. And John gives us the purpose for his writing in John chapter 20, Verses 30 to 31, look at it with me. John says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. 
Stop right there. This means that what we are reading about and all the signs that he did, there are oodles and noodles more of what Jesus did. That John would say if they were even written, we don't have enough books to contain all that was written. But it goes on, it says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So why do we have John chapter 6, verses 16 to 20? John says, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So we have the story this morning of Jesus walking on water. Now don't get enamored and you go to the beach and say, let me try it. Not going to happen. You're going to sink quickly. But this story is here not to show us a magic trick, not to get us like, ooh, man, Jesus walked on water. If that's where you stay, then you're missing it. You're missing this story. There is a purpose why we have Jesus walking on the water. Let's look. The people in John chapter 6, verse 15, saw Jesus make a meal, a good meal, out of something that was minuscule. So much so that they said, here's our king. He could get rid of Roman rule. Anyone can do this? Is our king. Let's make him king. But Jesus rejected their enthusiasm because they tried to determine who Jesus was on their terms. Friends, do we do that? Do we try to de define Jesus based on what we think or who we say he is? Jesus rejected it. But then Jesus, in our text, he makes himself known to the disciples on his terms. He determines how he would reveal himself to those who followed him. And the way he did it was by walking on water. This shows that he is Lord. So the theme I want to bring out for these verses is the lordship of Jesus Christ. Again, Jesus is not weak. We always talk about he been, him being meek and mild, but he is king. Just go read Revelation. Two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Hair white like wool. Eyes flame of fire. Feet burnished bronze. And he, by the word of his mouth, he is laying people out. He's slaying his enemies. He's doing all of these things, and even Satan himself is no match for him. And in our text, Jesus, in human form, defies all of natural law, and he walks on water. Jesus is Lord, but often we refuse to submit to him as Lord. We refuse to submit to him. The truth is, See, we don't mind calling Jesus God, but do we want to call him Lord? But here's the thing, friends. You can't have one without the other. You say he's God, he must be your Lord, meaning you must submit, we must submit to his rule and authority. Since he is Lord, he could do what he chooses to do with us in creation. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 9. Verses 18 to 24, as we begin to walk through these verses, Paul says, so then he has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But notice what Paul says, but who are you, old man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder? 
why have you made me like this? Doesn't it sound like a child that goes talk, talk, talk to the parents like they know better? Paul says, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but from also from the Gentiles. Friends, again, Jesus is Lord, and this is displayed by his walking on the water and the miraculous nature in verse 21, by which when he entered the boat, the Bible says that they were immediately at their destination. We're going to talk about that in a minute. He's Lord. So it's two points that I have this morning as we look at the Lordship of Christ. Let's look at the first one. The first one I want us to look at darkness and the absence of Jesus. Darkness and the absence of Jesus. The text begins by saying in verses 16 to 18, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. The Bible says the disciples went down to the seashore. Verse 15 states that Jesus had gone up into a mountain. He went up the mountain and then verse 16, the disciples had gone down to the seashore. When we read Mark chapter 6, verse 46, we are told that Jesus went up the mountain to pray. Again, this story is in the Gospels. And to kind of get a, a, a holistic picture of what happened, we need to see what these Gospel writers have said. Now, we are not told in John why Jesus went up on the mountain, but based on what Mark says, Jesus may have sought God's presence through prayer because of what the people just tried to do in verse 15, make him king. Again, Jesus is God, but he always submitted to the Father's will, and he always sought the Father, which challenges me. We pray to God for big things. We think that the big things God can handle, but the small things we'll take care of. Friends, let me ask you a question. What in our life is big to God? Everything is small. Everything is small. And yet he says we could come to him, seek him through prayer. What in our day, like I know this, many of us, we don't even think about this. We're going to get in, here, get in our cars when we leave here. But how many of us pray, God, give me traveling mercies back to my destination? Is it wrong to pray that? I know when we go eat a meal, we probably just pray over our meal and not think about it. But do we do what Jesus did early in John chapter 6 where he prays to the God, God, you have put this food before me. As a matter of fact, God, I thank you that you've given me the resources to even pay for this meal or to go in my cupboard at home and pull a meal out. Lord, you've given me pots and pans and I could cook this meal. Lord, thank you for the ability that you've given me to be able to take things that don't go together and put them together and eat and I can have something that's tasty. Is it wrong for us to pray and seek God that way? But often we only seek God when we think the things are big. Lord, when I'm about to lose my job. God, when I don't, we don't have money coming in like we should. And we should pray for all those things. 
But Jesus goes to the mountain to pray. And maybe he's praying because these people are trying to force him to become king. Now, while Jesus was on the mountain, the disciples were sent to the seashore to get on board a ship, a boat to go to Capernaum. Again, get the scene in your mind, the Sea of Galilee. The disciples were on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus, uh, these disciples, they get in and they go into the northwestern shore to a place called Capernaum. The text also says that it was dark, that Jesus had not joined the disciples when they got into the boat. Now, when John says that it's dark, it's just not chronological. Again, if you like me, you like to see how everything lines up. You know, I, I, I love history, and I want to just see the, the timeline, thinking of everything just from a chronological standpoint. But often when John uses words like this, he is not being chronological. John is being theological. He gives double meaning. So not only was it dark literally, but John may be describing the disciples' theological situation as they entered the boat and headed to Capernaum because the disciples needed to know who Jesus is. And Jesus puts them in a situation where he would show himself. On their journey, they encountered a severe storm. Now, you need to understand something. These were fishermen. These were some professional dudes. Like, I don't watch fishing nothing on ESPN. I don't even like fishing. Don't ask me. But these guys, this was their livelihood. We may fish for sport. They fished for survival and living. But they knew, like, they, they, they knew what would happen because the Sea of Galilee sat 600 feet below sea level. And often wind would collide with weather and these major squalls would come onto the sea. The disciples knew what could happen. And the Bible says the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Now, the disciples, they just went from a miracle to a storm. They just went from abundance and leftovers to a bad situation. And the Bible says it was dark and Jesus was not with them. But when you look at the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew says that Jesus made his disciples get into a boat to go to the other side, to Capernaum, which this shows me this. You and I can be in a storm and still in the will of God. I'm going to repeat that. You and I can be in the middle of a storm and be directly in the center of God's will for our lives. The problem is that when we don't have spiritual eyes or we don't seek him, we get all discombobulated. And we don't see things from his perspective and we get angry, we get belligerent, we may even begin to curse God because you got me in the midst of this. Again, we, are, uh, we live in a place of American exceptionalism, which means we assume that we should never have it rough. And if we have it rough, it's because we've done something wrong. But when life is good, when I'm always going up, then God is blessing me. But y'all, I'm speaking from direct experience. God will let the ground under my feet shift. Says, I'm about to show you something, Russell. Um, we about to go through it right now. 
And instead of me seeing from his perspective, I start getting all anxious and, 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 and panicky because I'm like, why is this happening? Has anybody ever done that? See, when life is dark and Jesus seems to be absent, in these seasons of darkness, we can become aimless. We can become angry. We, we try to work ourselves out of the predicament that we're in. Man, if I just do this, if I cut back on this, if I just do this, if I just stop watching this, or if I just do this, we just think that if we make changes, then we would create a scenario where life is going to get better. But where are you going to run from God? If he got you in the midst of something, uh, just go read Psalm 139. God says, if you make your bed in heaven, I'm there. If you go to the depths of Sheol, I'm there. What you going to do? I know when you stand up and when you lay down. I, knows, I know every word on your tongue before you speak it. I know your thoughts. God is so big, when he turns, he bumps into himself. If he is bringing about this scenario in our lives... Again, I've always said this, like, if, we, if he is the one, if we can see from his perspective and we see that he is the one that has us in the midst of what we're in, and we wanted to answer our own prayers, if we see what he says, God, we would answer our prayers the same way he's doing it, because we could see what he has taken us to and what he is trying to bring about in our lives. And we could do this when we understand that he is the good shepherd, trusting his leading. Because Jesus is Lord, we understand his lordship by three lordship attributes. Here they are. Control, authority, and presence. Jesus is lordship attributes. Control, authority, and presence. Even though we don't understand what is taking place in our lives often in the situations we have, because Jesus is Lord, he has the situation under control. He has it under control. He has all authority. For Jesus says in Matthew 28, 18, after he has been raised from the dead, he says to the disciples, I love it. Picture the scene, y'all. The last time the disciples saw Jesus, Isaiah says he was beaten so bad that you couldn't recognize him as a man. But then when he was raised, if you know in Luke and other places, the disciples saw him, Mary Magdalene and John, we'll see this later, Mary Magdalene didn't even know it was Jesus. She thought it was the gardener until Jesus spoke. Now he's raised from the dead, glorified body, flesh and bone, not flesh and blood, because he just poured his blood out. That's a sermon for another day. Flesh and bone, and now Jesus says to the disciples on the mountain in Galilee, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to who? me. He is the creator of all things. He's transcendent, yet he's imminent. God is both supreme and close. And because Jesus is God, he is Lord, even in those times when we are struggling. Even in those times when we are struggling. But why do we have storms in life? This is the question we need to ask. Why do we have storms in life? Again, if we say that God is sovereign, he either caused it, he allowed it, but he never misses it. He either caused it, he allowed it, but he never misses it. Storms exist, friends, 
to correct us. They exist to correct us. All of us need correcting, not just our children, for those of us who have children. We even need correcting because we are God's sons and daughters, which we often become fickle. And when we get off the track, God will use a storm to get us back on track. Repent, come to him, seek him. But another reason storms come is to take us deeper spiritually. Romans 8, 29, Paul says, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Y'all, sanctification don't feel good. It don't always feel good. But he allows storms sometimes to take us deeper spiritually. Jesus is about to show the disciples more of who he is by doing something that only God can do. And when we see what Jesus walking on the water, this demonstrates that he alone is Lord. This terrible storm has no bearing on who God is or could defeat him. Many of us like dogs. Some of us don't like dogs. But picture the story of a little girl who's being chased by a vicious dog. This dog is coming, growling, snarling, very aggressive. And the girl is crying and calling for her dad. I'm talking about this, that this is that deep cry like, oh, Lord, if you don't come get me, my life is over type of cry. Her dad hears her. Her dad comes to her, picks her up. He has her in his arms. The dog has run and stopped at the dad. Stopped barking and just stopped right in front. The little girl is amazed because the little girl is looking at her dad and looking down at the dog. She looks at her dad and realizes, wait, looks at the dog and says, nah, 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 nah. You can't do anything to me now. She realized that this dog was no longer a threat. Why? Because she was in the arms of her father. You see, friends, intimacy breeds confidence. Intimacy breeds confidence. When you are close to someone whom you love and, and who has a lot more power than you do, you could be at ease. You could be at ease. See, God wants us to look to him when life is chaotic and messy. He wants us to look to him. He wants us to recognize that he will never leave us nor forsake us. That when life is hard, either again, he caused it, he allowed it, but he never misses it. And even if what happens will take me from this earth, what does the Bible say? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I'm never going to be apart from, from him. And we don't have to be afraid. Here's what the Lord said to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1 verse 9. God says to Joshua, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Understand this scene. Israel compared to the nations around him, them were nothing. God says, I'm, I got a land for you. A land flowing with milk and honey. You're going to go conquer this land. 
I will fight for you. And because I will fight for you, Joshua, be courageous. Don't be afraid. This is happening. This land I promised to Abraham, I'm about to give you this land. Be strong and courageous. Friends, the problems we face may control us, but they never control Jesus. They never control Jesus. When it's dark, we need to know that Jesus has not left us. He hasn't left us. So that's the first thing I want us to see. Finally, we close with this. The presence of Jesus removes our fears, connected with what we just said. His presence removes our fears. Verses 19 to 21 says this. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. The disciples were in the boat, and they were struggling. So the Sea of Galilee, scholars say, is about seven to eight miles long, and I think about 16 miles wide. I think, about, I, think I have my numbers right. And the Bible says they had rolled about three or four miles. They struggled. So they are in the middle of this sea. As things were hectic and they struggled, again, fishermen who knew how to navigate a boat, fishermen, this is how they made their money, but they were struggling. In the midst of this struggle, they saw Jesus coming to them, walking on the sea. And the Bible says when they saw this, they were frightened. This word for frightened, or they, them being afraid, is like spontaneous anxiety, panic. And we've all been there, right? Where it comes on us, it grips us, and we don't know how to, and we try to work it out, but it's just, it's so scary. Seeing Jesus walk on the water caused the disciples to feel this. Not only that, but they were too far inland to turn back and go. They weren't by the shore. They're in the midst of this body of water. So they were anxious. But Jesus comes in the midst of the storm walking calmly. Well, that's, that's some calmness right there. That's some calmness. It's chaotic. Have you ever been around somebody that you like, like, man, you should be all messed up. But they just seem to be like, it's going to be all right. And then you get mad with them. It's like, what's wrong with you? You should be freaking out right now. But they're not. Jesus comes to them walking calmly on the water. When you read the Old Testament, you see men like Moses, Elisha, Elijah, they would part water. But only God is said to be able to walk on water. Look with me at Job chapter 9, verse 8. Speaking of God, it says, Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? See, in the midst of their terror, the Lord Jesus came to them and he spoke words of comfort. Here it is. Verse 20. He says to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. In Mark telling the story, again, Mark said that they, the disciples believed that it was a ghost. Well, here we go now. Hey, we got a ghost, man. What is this? Is this, is this a demon walking on the wall? Is this a ghost? What's, what's happening? So they're terrified, and then they hear words that says, it is I. Do not be afraid. His words were assurance 
He identified himself. And when Jesus said, it is I, here's what we need to get in the Bible. Jesus intended for them to hear something that their scriptures already pointed to. What God said to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14, when Jesus says, it is I, this is the statement I am. I am. Moses, Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am sent me to you. God, Moses went to God like, no, you, you sending me back to Pharaoh. I already killed an Egyptian. Pharaoh wanted to take my life. And you about to send me back. And I'm supposed to go back now to tell them you sent me. But what is your name? Because the Egyptians got all these gods. They could see them and these gods have names. You, I can't see you. I saw you in the burning bush. But you're not like these other gods. What is your name? God says, I am. Tell them, I am that I am. Sent you to them. See, the presence of Jesus for the disciples and for us, it should alleviate our fears. We're not looking for Jesus to come walk on water. Y'all, guess where Jesus is with us? He's in me. He's in me, this bag of bones that's getting older exteriorly has something on the inside of me that's eternal. It's eternal. And I'm not just talking about my soul because our souls never die. By the way, this is another conversation about death. Y'all, I'm done. I'm, I'm about to be done. Death is not cessation. Death is just a parting of your physical body with your soul. That's why we know those who died. My grandfather died uh, four years ago. My, my, my biological father died. My grandfather died five years ago. My biological father died four years ago. All of us, we have family members who have passed on. They exist. They somewhere. And we put everybody in heaven in America, but that's another conversation. They exist but so, so, so in me, I'm not talking about my soul that's eternal, but we have, and it is eternal, but I have the eternal God. Because Paul says, now, now my body is a temple of who? The Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? Notice I didn't say, what is the Holy Spirit? I said, who is the Holy Spirit? He's God. And because he lives in me, his presence with me, it should alleviate our fears. This is why Jesus would say to the disciples, do not be afraid. And so when the disciples recognized Jesus, verse 21, it says they had joy. They had great joy. They didn't have to be afraid anymore. See, their fear came for how they viewed the sea. For the Jews, they saw the sea as the place where chaos and disorder existed. It was the place of demons. Understand this culturally. So Jesus is walking on the place of chaos and demons. He's walking on this. And it's not bothering him. And so now they look at their rabbi and they're afraid. They're not afraid anymore. You're walking on demons. You're walking on place of, this place of chaos. We good. Could we ever get there, y'all? Again, I... I in this room right now, no matter how many, all of us got stories. All of us have things that could bring us 
worry, family, work, whatever it is. But when we look at Jesus and keep our eyes fixed on him, realizing that uh, these, these demonic forces, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, Paul says, put on the whole arm of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, the breast. The, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, the shield of faith, feet shot with the gospel of peace. If we stay looking to him, again, we're human. I know we'll feel fear. But again, we have to remind ourselves, Paul says, don't worry about anything. But in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Jesus came walking on the sea. Showing that he is God and that he controls the sea. Finally, I want to point you to Psalm 107, verses 23 to 32, that lays this out. It says, some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their, in, in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament that, who brings people from a stormy sea to a safe haven. And the Bible says in verse 21 that when Jesus got in the boat, now John didn't say they got in the boat, but if you look at the other Gospels, Jesus got into the boat, and it says immediately they were at their destination. But where were they before? They only went three to four miles. If it's seven to eight miles long, Jesus gets in, they're there. Oh, that's a God I want to serve. They're at their destination. All because he is Lord and he is powerful. One day a little boy was trying to pick up a rock. The rock was pretty heavy for this little boy. And he, he's trying to pick it up and he's straining. And he says, Dad, it's too heavy. He says, son, you can do it. And so the son, just, he's still trying to pick it up. He says, no, no, Dad, it's too heavy. He says, son, I promise you, you can do it, son. You can do it. No, Dad, you keep saying I can do it. I can't pick this rock up. It's too heavy. Son, I promise you, you can do it. Dad, why do you keep saying that I could pick up this rock? He says, because you're not relying on the strength that's available to you. You haven't asked me. You are able to pick up this rock with my help. Friends, there's more strength available to you and I. There's more strength. I know I'm looking at grown folk in here right now. We strong mentally, emotionally, physically. We could do it. But if y'all want to be honest like me, I'm weak as wet toilet paper. When it comes to the things of life, it could break me down at any moment. And I realize I don't have strength. But God says you're not using the strength available to you.
you hadn't brought me into the equation. Because when you bring me into the equation, I don't need you to lift it. <laughs> I got it. And you're going to be okay. The Lord Jesus, friends, he will not calm the storm until we recognize him. He's not going to calm it until we recognize him. We need to fix our eyes on him more than we stare at our problems. He's able to walk on the very problems that we have. And when we see him correctly, I love it, things can change on a dime. Let's pray. Father.